We have such a large families. We need more food to survive. Others said we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we, we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. At the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Then I pressed further, what are you doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain, but now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day, and repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. They replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine, besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people, but because I feared God, I did not act that way. Wow. You may be seated. Thank you, Ray. I told Ray this morning, Ray, you got a lot of verses. He said, I'll trade, I'll trade a lot of verses for no hard names. I said, all right, good call. <laughs> good call. Man, so much to say, but um, I'm just so excited about what God's doing in our church, and I'm specifically excited about what God is doing uh, in our student ministry, and thankful for our leaders and parents. Parents, I know sports, activities, hobbies, busyness, it's hard to get them here on Wednesday nights sometimes. And I, I understand that. I've got a daughter in the youth group and we, we understand that. But God's doing something special. And, uh, you know, an hour and a half a week doesn't solve all their problems. But this is a fantastic place for your student to be. And God's doing something really special. So um, thank you to everybody who serves and everybody who works so hard for our students. Uh, I'm going to get into the message in just a second. But before I do that, um, I want to just address uh, what happened this week, culturally, politically, with the Supreme Court. If you've been around Hope City Church long at all, you know that we rarely, rarely talk about political issues in church. Um, and we do that on purpose. It's very intentional. I don't believe Jesus ministered that way, and we don't want to do that. Um, we don't want this place to feel like every other place in your life or every place that you scroll in your life. But every few years, I was thinking back, I've been here 16 years, every few years, there seems to be something that occurs culturally that's so important and so prevalent in our lives that I do feel like as your pastor, it's important to address it. If for nothing more than you to hear from me, but maybe to help you as well. I don't know exactly if, if you're looking for that or if you need that, but, but that's a possibility as well. And so before I talk about the sermon, and we'll get into the sermon, the series we've been doing this summer, I do want to just talk about the Supreme Court decision regarding Roe v. Wade and just the topic of abortion. 
Um, I have really good friends who love Jesus who are on both sides of this conversation. I think that's the most important place to start. Uh, One of the things that I love about Hope City is that um, everybody doesn't agree here. That's not always common in church. And what I love about this place is that there are different viewpoints and, and beliefs about a lot of things. What we do agree on is Jesus, and that's a good place to agree. Um, But I got lots of friends that I love who are on both sides of this conversation. And I know that for both sides of this topic, it carries a lot of conviction and emotion and a passion. Um, And I know that everyone in our church family is not on the same same side on this, uh, and that's okay. Personally, for me as your pastor, I'm speaking for me as your pastor, I do believe in the right to life. I believe that God has given purpose for every life and that in ways far beyond my understanding, he has purpose even for babies before they're born, when they're in their mother's womb. My faith personally compels me to believe that life comes from God. So personally, I was encouraged by the decision by the court. Um, That was my personal experience and response. But I also know that with that decision comes a lot of emotion. And I also know that this involves a lot of, of nuance. There's that famous uh, quote that says, for every complex problem, there's an answer that's clear, simple, and wrong. And I think when you're talking about something as uh, detailed and as nuanced as this, I've thought about that, that quote a lot since Friday, because I know for many of you, this is more than just about babies and life. And I understand that. Um, I had to personally get off social media this weekend for extended periods of time because it was just too toxic. And like we talked about two weeks ago, you know, the the first characteristic of an overly anxious society is reactivity. And there is this sense, even as your pastor, that like, I need to react, or that maybe you as a Christian need to react, or you as someone for a cause that you believe in, you need to react. And, and, and so for me, I just, I didn't want to get in that reactive place. And the people that I know and love on both sides of the issue are not at all like what is described on a, on, a, on a macro scale. Uh, the people that, that I know and that I love, they don't want to kill babies and the other friends don't want to control women's bodies. And as long as our conversation has to do with the extremes of wanting to kill babies or control bodies, we're never really gonna, gonna get anywhere. And we have to avoid the, the rhetoric and the extremes and remember that this is about people. It's about people. And how you treat people you disagree with says a lot more about your faith than what issues you fight for. I want you to hear me on that. We've tried to model that at Hope City Church. I hope you know that. We haven't always done it right. I haven't always done it right. I've addressed things in ways that I wish I could go back and change because I didn't do it with the heart of Christ or with the tone, the language of Christ. And you've probably made some of those mistakes too. But I firmly believe that how you treat people you disagree with says a lot more about your faith than the issues that you fight for. And don't hear me saying you shouldn't fight for your issues. Fight for your issues, that's fine. But God came to save people. God God encourages us and compels us to try to reach Americans, not necessarily save America, okay? It's people. And so let's keep that in mind. And as a church, we wanna experience the hope. We want people This is our mission. This is what we've been trying to do as long as I've been here and even before I got here. We want people to experience the hope of a relationship with Jesus. And that will continue to be our goal. 
And my prayer is that our relationship with Jesus will compel us to be more loving and more active to help people, especially women who believe abortion is the only option. And so I hope that we are so moved through our relationship with Jesus Christ that we respond and react differently in all of these situations that we're talking about. And so we're gonna continue to fight to make Hope City Church a place where you can come and escape the crazy, overly anxious world out there. Um, And as your pastor, I'm asking you to lead the way in that. If there's one characteristic that I would love for us as a church to be known for, it, it would be a place that is an escape from the craziness of the world where you can come here and not only experience the presence of God and meet Jesus, but you can meet people who have met Jesus and it has compelled them to live differently. And so let's lead the way in love and respect and treating people with dignity. And that's my heart and I would like for that to be your heart, all right? And so I just wanted to share that with you. This is gonna be a rough transition into the sermon, but I just didn't want, uh, I didn't want you to wonder why nothing was said. Um, There are times when nothing is said because the the question I always ask myself, and I did it again this morning, sitting out in my backyard was, if Jesus was in this moment, how would he respond to this? And we're not Jesus and we don't get it right like Jesus, but I, I want that to be our filter. And so I feel like a lot of times when people were like, Jesus is gonna love this one, like we're gonna tee it up for him to just nail people on this one. He wouldn't do it. And then when they didn't want him to say anything, he just couldn't stop talking. And so um, that's what I want us to try to do at Hope City. Okay, I love you. I love you. I want you to know that. And I don't know where you're at in all of this, but if you wanna talk, I'd love to talk with you. There's nothing we can't talk about, okay? Don't know how to transition, so transition. Okay, that's what we're gonna do. Okay, Uh, Ray read to us from Nehemiah. We've been reading through Nehemiah this summer uh, through this Old Testament book, and we're calling this series of messages that we're doing how to begin again, again, because anything worthwhile, we don't just do once. We don't just get it right the first time. We try again. We, we, we give it another shot. And, and Nehemiah's story is a story about rebuilding, about rebuilding the ruins for God's people, starting over and fixing something. And so uh, we've been using his story to learn some principles to help us for the things in our life that we're trying to rebuild. That's what we've been trying to do. We've talked about things like marriage and finance and personal health and parenting and, you know, those things that matter in our life. And they matter to God because they matter to us. But specifically, we're talking about our spiritual condition, that we, we want to keep trying again, keep pursuing Jesus, keep going after God and rebuild any of that spiritual part of our lives that, that seems to be ruined as well. And Romans tells us that uh, the scriptures long ago were written to teach us, to give us hope and encouragement. And so that's what we've been doing is we've been going to Nehemiah's story to be taught, to be encouraged, uh, and to find some hope. And the story of Nehemiah has a lot more to do than just principles about rebuilding. It's about Jewish history. It's about God's covenant and faithfulness and all those things that we could, and maybe at another time we will get into, But what we've been trying to do for these weeks is to just take out some principles. Let Nehemiah teach us, let Nehemiah encourage us and give us some hope for anything in our life that we're trying to rebuild, anything that we wish was better, anything that we're losing hope that maybe ever will be um, better. And so, so far we've talked about things like taking ownership for the things that are ruined. We've talked about asking God for help and secrecy, the spiritual discipline of secrecy, doing more than we talk about what we're doing. 
We've learned about what we do is for God's glory. And we've learned about not being an anxious presence or being a non-anxious presence in the middle, middle of a, a overly anxious society. Last week, we learned about the importance of enthusiasm. And so um, that, that was last week. And this week, the verses that Ray read for us teach us about leading by example, leading by example. If we want to rebuild something that is ruined, we are going to have to lead by example. And those last six words that, that Ray read to us are incredibly powerful and they're so powerful. I would love for us to read them together. Can we just read these six words together from the end of, of the verses that we read it starts with I, the next word is did, the next word is not, act that way. Can we just say that together? You ready? Come on. I did not act that way. Come on, one more time. I did not act that way, right? Now, what's important to notice about this story, and I don't know how much you know about the context of Nehemiah, we've talked about it some, but what's important to notice about this story is that Nehemiah could have acted that way. All of the details in the verses that we read about, about uh, oppressing the people and taking advantage of the people and benefiting himself, he was within his rights to do those things. He could have done what the other leaders were doing. He could have done what the other leaders before him had done. He would have been justified in acting like that. He had the king's blessing. He had paperwork from the king. He had the king's financing and backing but Nehemiah doesn't do that. Instead, we find Nehemiah doing better than what's expected of him. Right. Nehemiah was so committed to what he was trying to accomplish that he decided he would do better than what was expected of him. He'd do better than that. This is what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking about when he, when he shared his famous quote, I'm sure you've heard, uh, when he said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. That was Martin Luther King Jr. Speaking to this issue of doing more than what's expected of you. But the question is, why did Nehemiah do it? Why did Nehemiah do more than was expected of him? And I guess more importantly, the question is, why does any of this matter to us as Christians? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to go above and beyond. You don't have to be a Christian to lead by example. Anyone, regardless of your belief or your faith system, could do what I'm teaching you today. I could take this talk, take out a few Bible verses, take it to a corporate office, and we could just share this with them. For us as Christians, the question is, why does this matter to people of faith? Why, why is it different for those of us who own a business or who are parents or who are employees or entrepreneurs or principals or teachers, those of us who are people of faith, why is us doing what's more, more than what's expected of us different than somebody who isn't a, a, a Christian? Well, Nehemiah had very specific motivation. It's the same motivation for you and me. And it tells us why he did it. We don't have to guess. It says it right there before I did not act this way. It tells us why he did it. And it says, because he had a lot of followers on Instagram. That's what it said. Did you see it? No, I'm just kidding. That's not what he said. He said, because I feared God. The reason I was acting the way that I was acting, my motivation was because I 
feared God. Now, when we talk about fearing God, matter of fact, Proverbs tells us that the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of God. And when we talk about fearing God, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that like we cower in a corner? Does that mean that we're terrified he's gonna strike us with lightning? Is that what that means? It's not what that means. It's not what that means. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's talking about something that's precious or something that's priceless. It's this idea that if I was to say to you, hey, listen, I've got this really expensive vase. It's the only one like it. It's from like the 14th century. I don't know anything about vases, but I've got this vase. It's so nice. It's worth like $10 million. And I need you to take this, put it in your car and drive it across town to this place I need it to go. Hey, just a heads up, if you break it, you're dead. It's worth $10 million. You would carry the vase with fear and trembling, right? Because you would say, this is precious. I know what this is worth and I don't wanna mess this up. You would feel a responsibility to it. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, this is what it's talking about, is this idea of like, I recognize the responsibility of what's happening or what I've been called to do. I don't wanna mess this up because this is worth something. And this goes back to what Pastor Joe preached about a few weeks ago, that when we're working, we are not just working for our boss or for our spouse or for our paycheck. We are working for God. We are working for God's glory. Nehemiah believed that he wasn't just doing a job, he was on a mission. He believed that God had entrusted him with a responsibility and he took that seriously. And I wonder if when you think about the things in your life that are ruined or you think about the things in your life that you wish were better, I wonder if you feel that way. I wonder if you feel that way. Are you just a mom or a dad? Or do you feel like you have a God-given responsibility? Come on, parents. Like when we hold them for the first time, we believe that. Like, oh, what a... Man, this is a treasure, stewardship, honor. God has given me this responsibility. But then when they're like five and annoying you, you forget sometimes. You know what I mean? You forget that this is a God-given responsibility. They don't feel like a gift. You know what I mean? And, and, and so we forget sometimes. Teachers, administrators, principals, like first get that job and you're like, man, God has... God has me on assignment. But then like the 18th, you know, in-school suspension meeting for that day. And you're like, what, what am I even doing? Like, what, what is this? But, but you did believe and you should believe that God, God has you on a mission. That you're not getting on a plane and going to Africa, but you are getting in a car and driving to a school and you are just as much of a missionary as somebody who goes to another country because you're on a mission. You're on a mission. When you go to your job, do you feel like you're just an employee or do you feel like you are a missionary sent by God to go to your office? Go to your office, right? I was talking to somebody yesterday about their kids' travel sports team because this is, this is 40. You know, you just talk about your kids' travel sports. And, um, and I loved what they said to me. We were talking and they said, you know, we try to view the other parents on the team as our own little outreach or mission. And I was like, well, man, you're way better than me. That's what I thought at first is I thought like, man, I don't even like my parents. But, I, I, but then I was like, thank you, Jesus, for this example. Because, you know, you can get caught up in this sometimes. But they said, you know, yeah, we want our kid to excel in sports and we're committed to that. And it's a sacrifice. But every time we got to go on these trips or every time we got to be at the ball field together and we're there all day, we're not just there. We're on mission. We're on mission. Maybe God has put us in this place for five or 10 other parents 
and maybe he wants to, to use us, and, and we could maybe win the game. I don't know. I'm just saying, but we could do both if that's possible. Um, you know what I mean, right? And what I love about these verses we read today is that Nehemiah is not just hoping that things will improve. He's not just hoping things get better. Hey, I heard, I heard that the officials were not acting great. I heard the people were demoralized. I heard, I heard that everything wasn't going in the right direction. Man, God, I hope you fix it. God could. God could. I heard uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes say the other day, um, he said, God has never created a chair, ever. God's never spoke a chair into being. He created trees and gave men skills. And so Nehemiah doesn't say to God, like, God, you sent me here and this ain't working. Fix it. He takes on the responsibility to lead by example and to fix it with God's help. And he does two things that we know of. He could have done more, but he does two things that we know of. The first thing is that he confronts the problem. He confronts the problem. He hears what's going on. He calls a meeting and he confronts the problem. And when it comes to confrontation, there's usually two types of people. The people who like it and you're a jerk and the people who don't like it and you need to speak up. That's usually the two things that happen in confrontation. When you talk to people who are like, I love confrontation. That's probably a problem, <laughs> right? My wife, my wife said something years ago that we've kind of adopted as a motto for us, and I'll probably mess it up, but she says it this way. If you really want to say it, you're probably, you probably shouldn't say it. You're probably not the person to say it. But if you don't want to say it, you're probably the perfect person to say it. So when it comes from confrontation, you remember you said that? That was good. That was good. <laughs> that when it comes to confrontation, we can't live our lives without confrontation. We can't be so spiritual that we're afraid to have hard conversations. And so Nehemiah says, family meeting, family meeting. So maybe there's something you need to confront in your life. Maybe there's something you need to confront in your marriage. And when I say confront, I don't mean fight about it again. I mean, address where we are and say, we can't do keep doing this. What are we doing? This is not acceptable. God wants something better for us. So the first thing Nehemiah does is he doesn't back away from confronting the issue. But the second thing is he, he does is he leads by example. He leads by example. And I don't want to sound hyperbolic today because preachers can do that. But I genuinely believe with all of my heart, if we decided to do those two things, almost any problem that we're, that we're facing or any, anything that we're trying to rebuild in our life would get better. If we left here today and said, I'm committed with God's help to confronting the problem and leading by example, I believe almost any issue would get better. Think about it right now. Whatever it is that you wish would be better, whatever you're trying to begin again, whatever you're, whatever's ruined that you're, you're trying to turn around, if you'd be willing to confront the problem and you would lead by example, I believe it would get better. And this is the little phrase that's been rolling around in my mind since Monday, since I knew we were preaching these verses. Here's the phrase that's been rolling around in my mind. Things get better when people decide to do better. It's deep. You ready? Get that. Write that down. It's deep. Things get better when people decide to do better. It's so simple, but it's so easily forgotten. We hope things will get better. We wish things would get better. And of course, there's emotion attached to this. The reason we're not doing better is we're discouraged or we're hopeless or 
We don't know what to do. And I get all of that. I'm, if, if, it was, if it was all on paper, we'd all be doing fantastic. I understand there's an emotional element to all of this. But what I'm trying to show you from Nehemiah's story is that things don't just inevitably get better over time. If you're headed in the wrong direction, time makes it worse. You're further lost. So we, it doesn't just inevitably think, just hold on, it'll get better. Well, I mean, the sentiment of that is it can't be bad forever. That's true, but not necessarily true. And the things that we're trying to address in our lives, if we will do better, it'll get better. I believe that. In his book, Zero to One, author and entrepreneur Peter Till describes four types of people, or he would say four different mindsets people have when it comes to the future. I loved this. Um, Till says that there is, there's four kinds. He says there's indefinite pessimism, definite pessimism, indefinite optimism, and definite optimism. I'll explain these to you. He says indefinite pessimism is the, is the belief or the mindset that the future will be worse, but I don't know what to do about it. Like it's going to get worse, but I mean, you know, what do you do? That's indefinite pessimism. Definite pessimism says the future will be worse, so I know exactly what we need to do. We, I, know, I know some things that we can do to, to protect ourselves. Indefinite optimism says the future will be better no matter what I do. And definite optimism says the future will be better because of what I do. All right? So look at this chart. They're going to put this chart up on the screen for you. I threw this together to try to help us understand a little bit. But this is what Teal is saying. Teal is saying that people who are indefinite pessimists, okay, indefinite pessimists, that they just react and they hope things don't get worse. The economy, the school system, our, public, our, you know, our health, our marriage, our kids, our money, it's going to get worse. It's going to go bad. But, I mean, what can you do about it anyway? And these people are usually really cynical and resentful of anybody who's successful or has anything going good for them because they got lucky and these people got unlucky. And so they're very cynical and resentful. People who are definite pessimists, okay, they limit risk. They, they hope things will get better. But in the meantime, they're going to control as much as they can, and they're fearful of any new ideas because preservation is most important. People who are indefinite optimists, they feel entitled to success. They have a high expectation, few plans or habits to do it. Just kind of assuming things will get better. This is typically what Teal says is second-generation success. But he says, people who are definite optimists have a clear vision. They create a plan and execute. They're curious and place high value on personal responsibility. So leave that up there for just a second, guys. I wonder where you would put yourself on that, that chart when you're thinking about where you're at in your life or where you're at in your marriage or your kids or your job or your money or whatever it is, your spiritual faith, whatever it is. Are you the type of person who says it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go bad and there's nothing you can really do about it? It's going to go bad, so let's make sure we do everything we can to, like, hold on. It's going to go good. Just trust me. I don't know why, but it is. Are you the type of person who says it's going to get better because I have a plan and we're going to execute that plan? Now, here's what's interesting is um, Till says that all 
that, that three, you can, be a, you can be a definite pessimist, an indefinite pessimist, or a definite optimist, and you can actually figure out a way to be successful because fear is a pretty motivating thing. You could at least be a good saver, maybe, or whatever. He says the only type of mindset that doesn't work, he was talking about business. He says the only type of mindset that doesn't work in business is the indefinite optimist because they believe that things will get better but have absolutely no plans to make things better. So he was talking about the state of our country currently. He says people are saving less money than ever, but they're sure the economy is gonna be okay. If you ask them, what's your financial future? They'll say, great. You say, they'll say, we don't have one. What about your career? It'll get better. What's your plan? It'll just get better. Your physical health, your relationships, all of those things. He said the only mindset that cannot succeed is the indefinite optimist because they are just so naive. They're just sure it'll get better, but they have no plan or accountability to make it better. And as you're thinking about whatever it is that you're starting again for the 10th or the 100th time, whatever it is that you need to rebuild. Do you have a plan? Are you willing to lead by example? Are you willing to do more than what is required of you? Are you willing to confront the problem as hard as it may be? Do you believe you're on a mission from God and that yes, God will help you and that God has a future for you, but that God asks you to be a part of that plan? He asked Noah to build the ark. He asked Moses to go lead the people out. He sent David towards Goliath with the stones and the slingshot. Are you following what I'm saying? So we gotta be careful that we don't make Christianity just like self-help and say, you've got what it takes, you can do it, it's all you, it's all you, it's all you. That's not true. The Christian doesn't believe that they can help themselves when it comes to their salvation or their soul or their eternity. But we do believe that the spirit of God is inside of us. We should dominate the market on definite optimism because the spirit of Jesus lives on the inside of me and he does empower me to do some things that maybe I couldn't do on my own, but I have the spirit of God. And if nothing else, I know he's working all things together for my good. And if that's not good enough, I know that one day he will return and he'll defeat death and hell altogether. So somewhere in there, there's some hope. We don't have to guess if things will get better. God is on our side and he sends us on mission. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you haven't tried and led by example before. I'm not saying you haven't confronted the problem before and it, you know, didn't work. I get all that. But I am saying that things get better when we do better. You know, we talked about it at the beginning just with the cultural political stuff. I'm not naive enough to believe that my one little thing can make a difference, but I do believe if every Christian decided to just do better, we'd solve a lot of problems. I heard Andy Stanley say one time, and I'm going to mess this quote up. This is several years ago. But he said, I know there's a lot of political things that we get worried about. He said, but if every Christian would stop watching pornography, stop doing drugs, and foster or adopt one child, we'd change the world. And I was like, man, that's really smart. (laughs) And so I'm not saying that all the problems will go away, but I am saying things get better when we decide to do better. And I know you're discouraged and I know you're frustrated and I know you feel helpless and I know you've tried before and you're saying it doesn't make any difference. That's not true. 
The Spirit of God lives on the inside of you. And he will help you. And so I want to ask you this question today, and then we're going to end. And then Kaylee's and the team's going to come back and lead us in some worship. But let me ask you with this question. Where could I do better than what's required of me? As you think about your job, your marriage, your kids, your money, your health, your faith. Where could you do better than what's required of you? Not because you're trying to, you know, impress people. But because there's a fear of God. There's an appreciation for God, for the mission, for the purpose that's on your life. You believe God has called you to something that matters. And so whatever it is that you're trying to fix or rebuild or whatever it is, and you, you have your requirements, employee at your job or career, teacher, maybe you're divorced and you've got, you know, visitation and custody things going on, or, you know, maybe you owe some money. Or, where could you do better than what's required of you? You could do what's required and you're within your rights to do it. And nobody can say you didn't do what you should have done because you did it. But where could you do better than that? Where could you go above and beyond? Where, like Nehemiah, could you say, I decided this was too important, so me and my crew, we didn't do that. I didn't act that way. I believe that there's somewhere in your life, areas in your life, where you could make a commitment today, I'm not gonna act that way. I know that's how other people act, and I know that I'm within my rights to act that way, but I'm not gonna act that way because God's got something bigger and better for me, so I'm gonna do better. I'm gonna do more than what's required. You with me? I'm gonna pray for us, and then Kaylee and the team are gonna come and and lead us. God, thank you that you did not leave us to just float, you know, with no purpose in our life, but that you give us purpose. You give our life meaning. You give us responsibility, and you send us on mission. God, I pray for every person in the room right now who's discouraged, every person who feels like it doesn't matter what they do, that things will never turn around or that things will never change. They've kind of thrown in the towel or waved the white flag. God, I pray that today they would have a fresh deposit of hope, a fresh deposit of encouragement that things can get better if they're willing to do better. I pray, God, that they would be compelled, we would be compelled to do more than what's required because what you've called us to is that important. I pray for every marriage that's considering quitting. I pray for every strained relationship between parent and child. I pray for every person who's in a hole so deep financially they feel like they'll never get out. I pray for every employee who feels like they're at a dead end. I pray for every entrepreneur whose dream hasn't panned out the way they thought it would. And God, I pray for every believer whose faith feels like it's fading and they're not sure if they'll ever feel passionate about you again like they used to. I pray, God, that today we would leave here with a commitment that even though we could, we're not gonna do what everybody else does. We're gonna do better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.